Mark Lanier here. Welcome. We thank you for tuning in. And I'm really excited for this biblical study while living with coronavirus. We're in the middle of a series talking about how Jesus may have related some Old Testament truths about his crucifixion and resurrection to Cleopas and another apostle or disciple who were walking from Jerusalem Easter afternoon out to Emmaus. And, and Jesus was explaining to them uh, the scriptures. And, and that's what we're in the process of doing. Now, the last several weeks in a row, if you've not heard the lessons, I urge you to have a chance to listen to them. The last several weeks in a row have been weeks where we've dealt with our cosmic story that's told within the, the tabernacle itself. And that is the tabernacle that we've got right here, a model of the, the pieces of furniture that included this Ark of the Covenant, that's the archon or the chest, a second independent piece of furniture, the covering, the mercy seat, the various items that we talked about how they tell our cosmic story. In addition to that, the two weeks ago, we talked about how the tabernacle speaks not only of our cosmic story, but it speaks of God. And what the tabernacle has to say about God is something we covered as well. And then last week, we talked about how the process of what occurred at the tabernacle speaks of Jesus. What went on behind the enclosed walls? What did the high priest do in secret in the Holy of Holies? Or at least away from looking eyes. It wasn't in secret. People knew. But we needed to talk about that. And that's what we talked about. And we did this within this idea of, of the tabernacle being the, an earthly shadow of a heavenly reality. Now what I'd like to do this week is take this a step further. And say that the tabernacle is actually one earthly shadow of a greater heavenly reality, but not the only one. There are others that are included in the New Testament and, and used to, to, to help us better understand our faith, and I want a chance to talk about those with you today. Now, we're doing this not uh, at our church because we're in the midst of a very unusual time in this world today. These are upside-down days. These are peculiar days. These are days when things just don't seem right. And it, it's like you could go back and, and say, you know, one day the world just seemed great. The sun was out and the wind behind us. It was smooth sailing. We thought, what a world in which we live. And then the coronavirus hits and everything after that just seemed to go to dirt. Oh, it started simple enough. Everyone worried sick about whether or not they were going to have toilet paper. But over time, this crisis became something where we were just questioning, can we overcome it? And then the economic ramifications of it, both on an individual level and on a countrywide level. We, we still don't know the depths of the financial pressures. And, and that, that bomb is still not fully exploded. And so people have tried to live isolated lives. They've tried to stay protected as much as they could. But isolation just leaves you crying for help. Well, I have news for you. My news is this. 
The crisis in which we are living right now is not the first crisis that humanity has endured. And I want to use this time we've got together today to show you a true light at the end of the dark tunnel. And I want you to take a moment and just personally assess, how has this crisis affected me? How's it affected my mood? How's it affected my mental state? And maybe not even just this crisis. Maybe it's another aspect of your life. I've got a friend who's been through it personally. Lost a son. Uh, uh, devastation on a level I can't relate to. There is darkness in this world, and I want this class to be one that shows a true light at the end of the dark tunnel. So we're going to do three things today. First, I want to look at some other crises. I want to look at other crises. And then the second thing I want to do is look at the thrust of the book of Hebrews. And then the third thing I want to do is give some messages, some affirmations of faith. So that's the road before us. Let's start out. Point number one, let's examine other crises. I've thought of three times of crisis that are worth talking about. Time of crisis number one. Let's go to 2000 BC. There's a fella named Abram. Now his name's going to be changed later to Abraham, but we'll just stick with Abram right now. Abram has been called out of his hometown. He's been told by God that he's got a journey hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. And it's not just get behind the wheel of the car and make sure he's got gas in the truck. It's walk. Oh, with all of the people who work for you. Oh, with all of your sheep and goats, your herds. Oh, no credit cards. Oh, no currency exchange. Oh, no one will leave the light on for you with a nice three-star motor in to enjoy on the way. It's, oh, no GPS. Oh, no road map. And so Abram leaves and he takes his wife and he takes his possessions and he takes his workforce and he leaves. He takes along with his family, his nephew, Lot. And over time, God migrates him through Haran and into the land that we know as Israel today. And by the time they get to the land that we know of as Israel today, they've become fairly well to do. The livestock have reproduced and they've got a lot of resources. And there's a little friction that's happening between Lot, who's the nephew with his own family and resources, and Abram, who's the uncle and who's got his resources. So Abram, being a wise man, says to his nephew, hey, buddy, look, it doesn't work for us to be together. 
uh, as consistently as we are. We'll get together for Thanksgiving and Christmas and major holidays, but you need and I need to separate our herds and separate our workers. There's just, this land ain't big enough for the two of us. And so Abram gives, a very giving man, gives Lot the choice. Says you can have the land over here or you can go have the land down there. Now Lot looks and he says, oh, the land down there, that's primo real estate. Believe I'll take the primo real estate. Thank you very much, uncle. See you later. Call me, we'll do Thanksgiving. And so he goes down and he takes that choice land. Now there's a problem here. Choice land is in demand. And so the neighboring, they're called kings, but they're basically tribal leaders. The neighboring tribal leaders become marauders and they swoop down and they conquer Sodom and Gomorrah and these other lands where Lot has hung his tent shingle. And they capture not only all of the land, and, but all of the booty of the land, including Lot and his livestock and his um, workers. They, they've enslaved him. Lot becomes a slave. And uh, so does his family. And Abram is faced with a crisis. What to do? Well, Abram decides the solution to this crisis is one of uh, rescue. So Abram goes and, and rescues Lot. He take, Abram takes 318, I think, of his best men and goes out there and whips the daylights out of those marauders and rescues Lot and brings him back. And as that crisis is over, and, and, and I say crisis, come on now, let's think about it. One day, everything's rosy. The next day, a messenger comes up, bedraggled and worn out and says, your nephew's just been conquered along with everyone else. He and his family have been taken, their livestock taken, everything that they've got taken by a band of marauding thieves who are enslaving them. That's the kind of, that's, that's a personal crisis. Someone came to me and said that that had happened to my nephew. It would be a moment of Becky and I, what do we do about this? But Abraham goes and by the grace of God, Abraham is victorious. And as Abraham is able to rescue Lot and all of the possessions and win, Abram comes back and he is confronted with a, a meeting right outside of Salem, which is an ancient name for Jerusalem, most scholars seem to believe. Yeru can be a concept of new, so Yerusalem is a new peace, new Salem, but Shalom or Salem is uh, uh, the, the predecessor name. And, and Abram runs into a high priest who comes out. His name is Melchizedek. Melchi means my king. Zedek means is righteous. Melchizedek, my king is righteous. And Abraham comes out and they break bread and have wine. And Abraham gives a tenth of everything, all of the spoils of war to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is said to be not just the king of Salem, but also 
a, a priest of God most high. That's one crisis. Second crisis, 33 AD. Jesus, for three years, has had this incredible ministry. He's raising people from the dead. He's healing people. He's taking just a few loaves and fish and feeding thousands of people. He's got a ministry that's vibrant, that's turning lives around. He's, he's ministering. The, the lame can walk. The deaf can hear. The blind can see. He's found whores on the street who are turning their lives over to the Lord. He's found wretched tax collectors who are dedicating their lives to collecting souls for God. Everything. See, this could be the Messiah, the anointed one. He even gives some indications he's the son of God. After all, he was born with great fanfare. And, and, and the people are thinking the Son of God, the Messiah, is going to restore Israel. We've been under the thumb of Rome and before Rome of, of, of Macedonia and alternating between the residual of what was the Macedonian Empire, the Seleucids and the Egyptians fighting back and forth over us, and, and, and before them the Macedonians, and before them uh, uh, um, the Babylonians or the Persians. And then the Babylonians. And, you know, we, we've been under the thumb of people for so long we can't keep it straight. But the Messiah is going to come and restore Israel. And what better king to follow than someone who can heal the sick? So you go into battle. You, 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 you get hit by an arrow. Piece of cake. Jesus is king. Boom. You're healed. The arrow pierces your heart, you're dead. That's okay, Jesus raises from the dead. Boom, you're healed. Biggest problem of an army, their stomach. That's okay, you got a couple of fish, five loaves of bread. Boom, 5,000, fed. This is the guy who's gonna turn Israel around. We will own Rome because of this Messiah. Then he gets arrested. And he gets crucified. And he's dead. I mean, dead. The one who healed others couldn't heal himself. The one who calls down God can't get off the cross. Dead. Buried. Next day, still dead. Still Still buried next day. Still dead. Still. Wait. On the third day, the stone is rolled away. And there are rumors that this crucified Savior has been resurrected from the dead. What do you make of this? Now, here's a crisis. Everything we thought was coming up roses. We were living at the cusp of the time of seeing the kingdom of God, i.e., in their mind, physical Israel, reestablished to dominate the world. The be-all, end-all is here. But he got killed? 
and now supposedly is resurrected? What does that even mean? What's going on? And that's what Cleopas and his friend were talking about when Jesus, in disguise, joins them on the road and begins to explain. Let me give you a third time of crisis. We're going to fast forward to the mid-60s. Let's say 64, 65, 66. Nero sits on the throne. Nero, bad, bad, bad emperor. Bad emperor. Nero wants to expand his palace and has to burn multiple hills of Rome in order to do it. So he burns them. The Romans get all upset. What a young, immature, 20-year-old emperor is doing this. He's just put everybody out of house and home for his own expanded little palace. And Nero has to scotch the rumors that he did it himself. So he blames the Christians. Says the Christians did it. Say, where is this in the Bible, Mark? I haven't read this in the Bible. No, this is in Roman history. He blames the Christians. So in 64 AD, Nero is responsible for the martyrdom, the death of both the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul. Meanwhile, over in Jerusalem and Judea, there's a great restless spirit that same restlessness that wanted to make Jesus an earthly king has had another three decades to fester and grow. We know now that it will break open into outright rebellion by 68 AD. And Judea will rebel against Rome to try and throw the shackles of dominion off. But by the mid-60s, it's not rebellion yet. We've got a second generation of Christians, though, that by and large in Jerusalem are Jewish believers. And I don't mean like 51%. I mean so much so that the church historians will say that the Jerusalem church was de facto, basically at this point, all Jewish believers. Christianity was considered a sect of Judaism, much like the Essene community or the, 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 the Sadducees or the Pharisees would be a, a sect or a group. And so you, you've got these Christians who are in angst because they're seeing a crisis unfolding. They've lost Peter. They've lost Paul. They're living in a community that is... Uh, fingernail away from open rebellion against Rome. And open rebellion against Rome is going to mean Titus and the Roman legions come in. And it's outright warfare against the most powerful army since Alexander the Great. Into that moment comes the book of Hebrews. And we want to talk about it, but we'll talk about it understanding that once that rebellion broke out, the temple is destroyed, Judaism is changed, the rabbis take over, and they have to figure out how do you worship without a temple? What is Judaism without sacrifices? 
and, and, and it turns a corner, Judaism turns a corner that it's never been able to return from. All three times of crisis that I've talked about, Abraham's crisis, the crisis of the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus, and the crisis of Jerusalem in rebellion, get the same message delivered to them. And it's the same message that can come to us in our crisis today. So with that as an examination of other crises, I want to give you that message. I want you to get the thrust of the book of Hebrews. Now, I told you that the book of Hebrews dealt in shadows and realities. And I've used this slide for the last several weeks. The slide of an airplane shadow coming to land. I talked about how important it is to understand the shadow. The shadow gives definition and meaning to things, but you do not want to travel on the shadow. You want to travel on the plane or you're never going to get where you're going. You want to travel in reality. The shadow's useful, but it is not even remotely a close second for the airplane, the reality. You don't want to say, well, I'll go halfway with the shadow. No, you're not going anywhere with the shadow. The shadow is just going to help you identify the airplane that you need to take for your destination. Now, the Old Testament, the law, if you will, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, Deuteronomy, especially as the Torah, but the Tanakh, the scriptures, the Old Testament, the law, what the book of Hebrews says is they were a shadow of reality. Here it is in Hebrews 10.1. The law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So what we've been talking about for the last several weeks are shadows of a true reality. Paul talks about this in Colossians, where Paul talks about how there are days and festivals and Sabbaths and moons and all of this stuff laid out, but he says, these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance, the reality belongs to Christ. That's Colossians 2.17. Thank you, David, for plugging me into that last week. These are a shadow of the things to come. Now, here's what the writers are saying. The writer of Hebrews or Paul in Colossians. The tabernacle is a shadow of something to come. Now, it's interesting in the book of Hebrews. Here you've got this book that's written before the destruction of, of the temple in Jerusalem. But it doesn't really talk about the temple. It talks about the tabernacle. Well, there are a lot of reasons for that, but let me tell you, first of all, that the tabernacle was the basis for the temple. The temple looked back at the tabernacle. The temple process was one that was rooted firmly in the process that God gave for the tabernacle. The Levitical priests that took care of the tabernacle service took care of the temple service. The sacrifices that were at the tabernacle happened at the temple. The structure of the temple was like the structure of the tabernacle. 
So the tabernacle was merely a later manifestation that looked back to, uh, the temple was a later manifestation that looked back to the tabernacle. Now here's the key, watch this. Both the tabernacle and then the temple are shadows of the reality of Jesus. The sacrifices, the process, the architecture, the instruments, the furniture, all a shadow of the reality of Jesus. And so when we look at that, that idea of the tabernacle as a shadow with Jesus as the reality, the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Mosaic system. And that's what we've dealt with in the last several weeks. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Mosaic system. I've got my buddy Rick, my buddy Rick's Jewish, and Rick and I talk about this, and he talks about the idea of being a completed Jew in the sense of, 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 of not just understanding the, the foundation and the architecture and the blueprints, but also understanding how it completes. Jesus as the fulfillment of the Mosaic system is, is, shows the great value, significance, and meaning of the system. Shows why God said, do it exactly this way, don't make any changes. But here's the key to Hebrews that goes beyond what we've talked about in weeks before. Here's where the writer in Hebrews does something really, really surprising. You ready for the big reveal? So, the writer of Hebrews says, I want you to consider the story of Melchizedek. That story about Melchizedek that Abram ran into after he rescued Lot and his family. The writer of Hebrews says that's a shadow of a reality in Jesus. Not only is it a shadow, but it shows that Jesus is fulfilling something greater than the Mosaic system. The writer of Hebrews spends more time talking about Mel Melchizedek. We say it in Lubbock, Melchizedek. But if you read it in Hebrew, it's Melchizedek. Um, the writer in Hebrews spends more time on Melchizedek than he does on Abraham. The writer of Hebrews has three chapters that talk about Melchizedek. Look at what he says. He says, um, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. He, Christ was appointed by God who said, you're my son, today I've begotten you. By the way, that's Psalms 2. And then he also says in another place, which is Psalm 110 verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he talks about how Jesus was designated by God 
to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now think about this. Abraham is worshiping, bowing down to Melchizedek. Abraham's before Moses. You don't have Israelites to leave slavery in Egypt without Abraham. Abraham's numero uno among the Israelites. So this is, Jesus is designated a high priest after an order of high priests that precedes all of Israel's priesthood. Jesus is... Uh, He says it again in chapter 6, at the end of chapter 6, rolling into chapter 7. Jesus has gone as a forerunner before God on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, king of Salem. When we hear king of Salem, we need to be thinking about Jesus. Jesus is called the Prince of Salem. Prince of Peace, Isaiah. Salem is Shalom, peace. So here you've got a fellow whose name is My King is Righteousness, is a forerunner or is a, a foreshadow of Jesus, who is the King of Righteousness. King of Salem, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Salem, Priest of the Most High God. That's the term used in the Genesis story. Melchizedek is Priest of the Most High God. Most High God is the term the demons used for Jesus when he cast them out in the Gerasenes. Said, we know who you are, Son of the Most High God. He met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the marauders, the kings. And he blessed him. So Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus said. And to him, to Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He paid his tithe. The Levitical priesthood was told to collect a tithe. Paul collected tithes for the church. A tithe means a tenth. That's what the word means. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. So is Jesus. King of Salem. So is Jesus. King of peace. Doesn't want us to get lost in failing to translate that. Without father or mother or genealogy. Genesis doesn't tell us who his parents were. We don't have lineage for Melchizedek. The idea being that Jesus doesn't come into his priesthood by virtue of his earthly lineage. Neither beginning of days nor end of life. Scripture doesn't tell us when he was born, doesn't tell us when he died. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. The Bible talks about Melchizedek in three places. In Genesis, Psalm 110, and in Hebrews. 
You can read about him in other Jewish literature at the time and know they were enthralled by the idea, like they were with Enoch, that here's someone where there's no recording of him dying. Maybe he's still around. Look how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Abraham the patriarch gives him a tenth. This is like the descendants of Levi. You talk about the Levitical priesthood. You talk about the Mosaic system, the system under Moses. That's where the Levites take the tithes from the people. But they're all descended from Abraham. This man who doesn't have his descent from them, Melchizedek, who's not Jewish, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who God had given promises to. Now, the writer of Hebrews says it's beyond dispute. The inferior is blessed by the superior. So Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek. The Mosaic system, by definition, is inferior to the system of priesthood of Jesus. In fact, look at the way he says it here, and let's get in the mind of, of, of a Jew at the time. One might even say that Levi himself, now remember, Levi is the head, he's the, the son of Aaron who's the head of all of the priests. Not son, relative of Aaron who's the head of all the priests, the Levitical priesthood. Levi himself, which is all of the priests under the Mosaic system, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham because Levi was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is this ancient concept that within Abraham or within me, before I gave birth, to, I didn't give birth, <laughs> whoops, sorry, Becky. The, me, um, before Becky gives birth to our offspring, those offspring are considered biblically to be in my loins. In that mindset, everybody that's going to be descended from Abraham who's not yet born is inside Abraham. We would say they got his DNA. But that DNA was already worshiping the Lord. In this case, Melchizedek. And so we have this story, and, and it goes on and on and on to talk for the next chapter about Jesus fulfilling something greater than the Mosaic system. Now, here's the reason why. If you go back one, two, three weeks ago, I talked about our cosmic story being caught up in the shadows, in the reality. The writer of Hebrews says Jesus does something more than simply give reality to the shadows of the Mosaic system. Jesus fulfills the true destiny of humanity. Think about that for a moment. Jesus fulfills not simply the Mosaic code, not simply the Mosaic system, not simply the tabernacle, not simply uh, the, the covenant. Jesus fulfills the true destiny of you and me. What is that? How does Jesus do that? 
Jesus, a true human, as well as a true God, the true God. Jesus became a true human to bring humanity to the throne of God. That's the cosmic story. That's what this life's all about. Jesus, a true human, brings humanity to the throne of God. Jesus fulfills the true destiny of humanity. And how does Jesus do it? Jesus does this through suffering and death. Jesus brings humanity to the throne of God by bearing the final consequences of sin, suffering and death. And that's why Jesus sits. If you read the book of Revelation, you'll see Jesus sits on the throne as a crucified lamb. In the Byzantine paintings of Jesus, he's got the holes in his hands and his feet because he's a crucified Messiah. Jesus, a true human being, brings us to the throne of God, but he does so through his own suffering and death. And that's how he fulfills the true destiny of humanity. Because we were destined to be in fellowship with God and in the presence of the Almighty Most High. And if a high priest is to make the way for us to be there, Jesus did it, not simply by the Mosaic Code's fulfillment, but by a greater high priesthood than any of that. Like Melchizedek. So the shadow, the shadow becomes any of these. Melchizedek, uh, the, the, the anointing, uh, the, the Levitical priesthood, the, the tabernacle, all of those find the reality in Jesus. The whole Old Testament is a prophecy of Jesus, of God fixing the problem of the cosmic love story of a God bringing a people into his hands. The whole Old Testament is a prophecy. Christ becomes the absolute revelation of God. The absolute satisfaction of human needs. So all of this points to the absolute final revelation of God in Jesus. The book of Hebrews begins, it's painted right up here. In the past, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son, through whom he's called all things. This is the final absolute revelation of God. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. You want to come into the presence of God? Come through Jesus. There's one door, only one door. Come through Jesus. Because he is the high priest who has satisfied all of our needs. So if that's the thrust of Hebrews, let me give you some messages of faith in times of crisis in times of darkness. Be continually assured that we have a present help in the actual difficulties of life. Let me give you just three different places 
to look at. Three different places. Here is Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have a true human being as a high priest, one who in every respect has been tempted, as we are, yet without sin. So, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can draw near to God in full assurance and full confidence that we have a present help because it was through suffering that in death that Jesus was able to present humanity to the throne of God. And any time we walk in suffering, when we walk hand in hand with Jesus, we know he shares, no, we're sharing in his suffering on our road. That's his road. We take up our cross and we follow him. And we know we will find mercy and grace that will help us in time of need. Look at... Uh, Hebrews 6, we'll just keep going in the book. Verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies. In the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner for our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is something that is a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. Cling to the Lord who brings you to the throne of grace. He bears our wounds in his scars. But by his stripes, we're healed. Let me give you one last one, then we'll basically be done. Hebrews 10. Look at, let's start it in verse 19. Uh, there we go. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence. We have confidence to enter into the reality of the holy places. We enter into the throne of God, the real one, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. See, there was inside the tabernacle, there was a curtain that separated out the holy of holies from the holy place. And the writer of Hebrews says that curtain that separated out the presence of God, the dwelling of God, what was symbolically heaven itself. That curtain was the body of Jesus. And when the body of Jesus was given on our behalf, and when we are entering into, through the body of Jesus, we are going into the dwelling of God.
That's what we've got. And, and that curtain, the body of Jesus, the body of Jesus was torn for us. And that's why Matthew says in Matthew 27, 51, that as Jesus dies, the, the, the Holy of Holies curtain was ripped from the top to the bottom. Heaven rips asunder the dividing wall, the access barrier to the presence of God because that's the body of Jesus. And when the body of Jesus was ripped asunder, the shadow was ripped asunder, lest we not understand fully what that shadow was. So since we've got this great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean, they would sprinkle blood to symbolize forgiveness, but we have been sprinkled clean by the blood of the Lamb. We've been washed with pure water. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because God is faithful. In the crisis, there's an answer. And it's to hold firm to Jesus because he's delivering us to the throne room of God and answering in final revelation all that life has been built up to be. And that's why I want to stir up you to love people and to do good things. And I want you to stir that up in me. Let's figure out ways we can stir each other up to good works. Get people to do things that are good for the name of Jesus. Get people to learn to love each other and not hate each other. Oh, I want the church to be known in the media and in the world as people who just go overboard loving others, even those they don't agree with, even those in sin, maybe even a prostitute. That's what the church should be known for because it's all about Jesus delivering up humanity to the Lord God. So let's don't neglect to meet together. Some people just don't do that. We need to be meeting together. And if it's social distance and we have to do it via the internet, thank the Lord for the internet. But let's make it a point to meet together, encouraging one another all the more as the day is drawing near. Because if we go back to the PowerPoint, we can be continually assured that we have a present help in the actual difficulties of life. So here's what you get. I want you, if you want, to email us. We'll be glad to send you prayers. If you need something in your life, if we've got resources where we can bless you with it, we'd love to try and do it. Maybe it's written material. Maybe it's a book or something. Whatever we've got that we can bless you with, our goal is to stir you up to good works, to help you experience that steadfast anchor of the soul. Our class website, wantmore-literacy.org. You've got to put the dash in there. We'll email you our announcements. I do a video thought for the day, five days a week. We'll email you those daily. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to help you. Anything we can do, because we're all trying to live in the fullest revelation of God as we study his word under his capital W word during these days of crises. May God bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.